one more thing, AP Euro Edition. This will be the section two on the Renaissance, which will include Raphael, Da Vinci, and Michelangelo in uh, reverse order. So sorry for the backwards intro. Um, so yesterday we looked at the David. And if you look at Michelangelo specifically, he thought he was a sculptor who painted. And while he's good at painting, he doesn't really like doing it very much. And so when we look at the Sistine Chapel, what is really unique about what he does is, and the legend goes, there's a variety of legends, by the way. If you go to Rome, you go to the Vatican, and you get a tour guide, a local tour guide, depending on the tour guide, you're going to get a different story about what happened. And what I think that shows you is the gravity of what he created. Anytime you have a piece like the David, like the Sistine Chapel, like the School of Athens, these really, really big, important pieces in Western tradition, they lend themselves to incredibly interesting, first of all, stories, some of them true, some of them half true, some of them probably not true. And honestly, we're not sure which ones we go with. So some of the local stories are actually different than some of the historical stories. And I'm going to tell you some of those today. Um, I will definitely tell you when they are a legend rather than absolute fact. Uh, but legend goes that this was Michelangelo's first fresco. And do you guys know how fresco is created? No? Yes? Good. So it, it's essentially you are plastering the wall in, in a very basic layman's terms. You're plastering the wall and as it dries, you paint the plaster. And so it essentially becomes part of the wall. So when you do this, if you mess up, you have to scrape it off, plaster again and do it again. Legend goes, it's the first time he ever did fresco and he never messed up. So he was just really, really good. And he hates painting. <laughs> now, this is a four-year project, and apparently he did it fast. They said that this probably should have done, been done in something like six to eight years, uh, and he did it in four. Now, if you're walking through the Sistine Chapel, has anyone been to the Sistine Chapel? Got any uh, art connoisseurs or Rome connoisseurs or Vatican connoisseurs? No? So if you are walking through, I'm going to give you some advice. If you ever go there, I do recommend going. Although my wife doesn't necessarily like the Vatican all that much because it is really, really claustrophobic most of the time. And if you're someone that is tall, I will say it is very claustrophobic because you feel like people are just on you while you're walking around. It's very, very cramped. But honestly, much of Europe is that way. So got to give them some credit. Uh, they're a little overcrowded. Now, when you go through the Vatican, you will walk through this little spot right here, which is a door in the front. And you've already gone through like a, a maze of different papal apartments and all these different things. You probably walked already two to three miles by the time you get here. And it's mostly indoors. And you get to the Sistine Chapel. You walk through that little door. Now, my recommendation is don't stop. Walk until you get to the center of the chapel. And you'll know you're in the center because a lot of these old buildings have drainage in the middle of rooms. And so you find the drain. And when you find the drain, you are going to find yourself underneath this painting, which is what? 
This is the creation of man. So the creation of man looks something like this. And most of us, in reference to this particular piece, see the creation of man as being one of the most humanist pieces in this entire chapel. And I'm going to have you write down a couple of different things as why it's humanist. First of all, what is happening in this piece? Yes? Um, well, I'm pretty sure that's Adam mm-hmm. contact, touching or contacting God for the first time. So I'm pretty sure so I'm pretty sure they see each other in really high regard. Yeah, so a couple of things I want to point out. God, first of all, is the same size as Adam, right? In the Middle Ages, what was proportion used to do? Show power, power, right? So power was proportion. If you were bigger, you were more powerful or more important. To show God and man on the same plane is incredibly humanist, right? The other thing is you have God touching Adam, And more than that, creating Adam. And in doing so, what does this sound like, this moment right here of the creation of man? Who else did we already study that had a very similar ideology in regards to the creation of man? Yeah? Pico. Pico. Good. So Pico goes through the Genesis story about how God is essentially imparting into us part of who he is. This was what makes us special. Right? makes us different than the rest of the creation. And from a humanist perspective, what is happening is you essentially have God imparting his qualities into us. And then if you look at what God is actually pictured in, what is this figure here? It is a brain. Yeah, it is a human brain. And there, there's a variety of ways at looking at this. But what is probably most humanist about this is that if God is imparting into man God-like qualities, then we are not just like God. In our realm of earth, we are God. And that whole idea of the human brain being essentially given to us by God with the same qualities God has. So this piece itself is incredibly humanist incredibly risque for this period and it's in the dead center of the catholic universe right the sistine chapel is actually the place that the pope goes and prays in the morning every morning and they don't open the sistine chapel until the pope is done praying and so this is the chapel of the popes and this is the middle of that chapel very humanist work right and quite honestly is for some even heresy for what's going on, right? So it's it's pretty risque to say the very least. Now, if you look at this piece, this is the, the final judgment. And I know I'm flying through the ceiling because the ceiling is really big and it has a lot of little panels to it. And I don't have time to go through all the different panels, but it's basically a bunch of different stories from the Old Testament uh, on, the, on the ceiling. Now, when he does the front, which is the altarpiece, and this is actually the place that you walk through So once you get to the center, you actually have a better view of the altarpiece. This is actually also transitional away from the high Renaissance to almost Baroque art. We consider Michelangelo to be a very transitional artist, meaning that many people followed his lead into almost a new art style. 
much of his work does come during the high renaissance what we call the high renaissance but no one can really fit michelangelo into what everyone else is doing because he is very unique now if you look at the pieces or the people that are in this piece what is unique about them that has a heavy reference to something else we've talked about already They are jacked. <laughs> Why are they so buff? Because man is awesome. Yeah. Okay. Yes? I guess that was Michelangelo's view of the perfect person, right? <laughs> Which is the view of what culture? Um, Greco-Roman, right? In the Greco-Roman world, the boxer's body was the ideal body. Michelangelo took a lot of time studying the male anatomy. It was like his favorite study. And so he actually, in his paintings, even the women in his paintings are jacked, okay? And it's because he is so familiar with it. And for him, he is in love with Greco-Roman anything. And so what you find in a lot of Italian Renaissance works is the term idealism, what they see as the ideal man. And the ideal man is that Greco-Roman period. If you fast forward to neoclassicism, when you talk about the new classics, Americans and the French during that period are making the statement, we are Rome. In Italy, in the Renaissance, they're saying, we wish we were Rome. We wish we were like that. Okay, It's a very different take. It's one thing to say you are something. It's another thing to say, I wish I was like that. Okay, Ironically, Petrarch, who's the father of humanism, will actually say he was so egotistical to say, you know what, I was just born in the wrong period. So I'm ahead of all these people. Um, You'll read Petrarch in the next humanism packet. But it is a very humanist ideology to be like, this is what we are. Now, I'm going to point out a couple things, and I'm sorry because I'm very stationary right now. You'll have to bear with me. I'll try to point them out, but I'm dealing with a very small screen. Um, Now, this guy right here is St. Lawrence. Uh, St. Lawrence was martyred and grilled alive when he was martyred. And so he is carrying with him his grill gate. Um, that's what's across his shoulder. Yes. Uh, is that Lawrence spelled L-A-W-R-E. Yeah. R-E-N-C-E. And he's grilled over hot coals. Um, the other person in there that is notable is St. Bartholomew. He's right here, both underneath the throne room here in the last judgment and saint bartholomew was filleted alive which means to remove all of your skin and dispose of it as you die essentially so he is filleted alive which is why saint bartholomew is actually holding his skin and in the held skin is a self-portrait of michelangelo so michelangelo actually puts himself in the painting as filleted alive and martyred. Now, why do you think Michelangelo makes this type of statement? We're actually guessing on this one. He does. Some people say, well, this is his signature. Well, why would you put your signature as someone who's flayed alive? Yeah, so I would say this is him having a bit of a pity party. He's like, I have to keep doing painting, first of all, Secondly, I keep having to come back and work for the Catholic Church. He doesn't really necessarily like 
doing these things. The first time when he painted the Sistine Chapel, the ceiling, um, part of the caveat was later he thought he was going to get a number of different sculptures he was going to be able to do. And he loved sculpture. So he's like, sure, I'll do the Sistine Chapel so I can do some sculpture. Well, now he's coming back and having to do it again. There's about a 24-year gap or so in between there where he's not in Rome and he gets summoned back to Rome to do this. So some people think it's almost his own martyr complex that like, I, I have to keep doing this for the Catholic Church. Now, there, there's also a theory out there. I don't know how much I love this theory or not, but the idea is that if you draw a line straight down from Michelangelo's flayed body or St. Bartholomew's flayed body and Michelangelo's face, he is getting dropped into this little boat right here. Now, what is this section of the painting, the bottom right section of the painting? Yeah. I'm assuming it's like Armageddon when like after the rapture is happening. Um, you're sort of close, but I think there's a better explanation. There is a better explanation yeah, for this one. Okay. It's fine. So the, the biggest thing that you see in Renaissance works or in this period is you get some references to hell. This particular reference is very unique. First of all, he only took about, I would say, an eighth of the painting. Is that about right? About an eighth of the painting is hell. And what's ironic is it's not a Catholic hell. It's a Greco-Roman hell. And so he doesn't even take a Christian hell. The people in here are from Greco-Roman mythology. So he doesn't even take Dante's hell. Um, now there's a funny thing on this too. In the bottom little spot right here, this guy, this is a painting of Minos, who is one of the guards in hell. And Michelangelo had a bit of a gripe with someone in the Catholic church, um, who didn't like this painting. He kept coming in and saying, this is heresy. Uh, you know, the Catholic church is going to go to hell if you allow this. And his name was Baggio de Sassena. And so Michelangelo paints him as Minos and puts big donkey ears on him and wraps a snake around him that's biting him. If you want to look at where he's biting him, you can. Um, but basically, he commemorates Baggio as being the guard in hell. Baggio sees this, goes to the Pope, legend says, goes to the Pope and says, um, Pope Paul, I need you to take me out of there. Uh, and apparently the Pope said, you know what? My authority is only over heaven. I have no authority over hell. And I'm sorry, there's nothing I can do. And so he gets to be uh, <laughs> commemorated forever. And Michelangelo did have a bit of an ego. And whenever you did cross him, he found a way to make it awful for you for the rest of your life. Uh, and that is true. The other guy that I can point out here is right here next to Christ and this is a reference to St. Peter. Now, St. Peter in Catholic tradition is always holding a big key. And if you could see this in more detail or a bigger version of it, you would see he's holding a really big key. And in the New Testament, it says, upon this rock, I will build my church. Jesus is specifically talking to Peter. And uh, the keys of heaven will be given to you. So I'm, par I'm paraphrasing. Uh, so whenever you see Peter in Catholic tradition, he, he's generally holding a key of some sort or maybe a keychain or something like that. So in this painting, who do you think is painted as St. Peter? 
In Catholic tradition, who is the lineage of St. Peter? The Pope. So this is Pope Paul III, who is the current Pope at the time. Okay, so he paints him. Now, in Renaissance art, this was characteristic number seven, right? Where artists as celebrities or contemporaries as celebrities. So many times these artists are doing that, where they're kind of littering the painting with contemporaries that are made as someone else in history, right? So this particular painting is actually quite amazing. I would argue that the front, the Last Judgment, is more transitional towards Baroque, whereas the ceiling is much more Renaissance. Uh, if you look at the two paintings, they are vastly different uh, in the way that they are presented. The other thing I just want to briefly mention is the difference here between the two Medici chapels. So he was, when he goes back to Florence, he starts working almost exclusively for the Medicis. Now, obviously, he has a couple of other things in between there, and he works for a number of different noble families. The Medicis are the ones who are pretty much in charge of Florence, though. So he, he does get commissions from them a number of times. But he's making the Medici chapels, and they're a, a lot of where many of the Medicis are buried to this day. And so if you look at the one on the left, this one, this one is almost exclusively Renaissance, meaning that very clean lines. You have the references to the Greco-Roman architecture, but it's not overdone. It's not extravagant. It's clean. See that? You look at the one on the right and you get to almost what we consider the Baroque era, where it's, I kind of nickname it the bedazzle me era of art, where it's just throw as much gold and silver and diamonds as you can on something and make it look prettier. And so, yes, it is definitely major flexing. The person who is probably most known for this is going to be Louis XIV, who's known as the Sun King. And when he created the Palace of Versailles, which is a monstrosity, um, it has so much gold everywhere that it's almost disgusting. Like you look at it and realize very quickly that, wait a second, are your people eating? Because that's a lot of gold. Um, and many were not. So, but the reason that Louis does this is because Louis believed in the Baroque era kind of embodied this was that. Louis was all about the representation of France. And if someone from another country was coming to see Louis, he was like, they're not coming to see me. They're coming to see France. And so I'm going to bring them to France. And so it became a representation that everything was really good in France. Now, if you went through an average city, that might not be the case. But that's not how Louis saw things. But we'll talk about that later when we get to Louis. All right. Um, I'm going to stop that here. And we'll talk a little bit about da Vinci uh, in a little bit and Raphael in a little bit. Um, but for now, that's it. Okay. Uh, anyone know what Da Vinci's nicknames were? He had a variety of nicknames. Does anyone have any idea what his nicknames might have been? Weirdo. Uh, that's, that's close. Anything that's, uh, it's not Vitruvian man. Although th this is a very common sketch that people know of, of Da Vinci. One of his most popular uh, nicknames, and actually the one that th there was a stars show that tried to do a whole series on Da Vinci, and it started out as being relatively accurate, and by relatively I mean it was loosely based on a Da Vinci that existed, and it turned into something that was not. It was just so far beyond what anyone ever could have imagined Da Vinci. Plus, they were taking liberties like, 
there's only a little bit of history that's written about da Vinci at the time. We have some of it. You're going to read some of it when you get your humanism packet. But it's relatively small. And so what we know is stories from other people and, and stories over time, legends and things like that. To come up with a full like three or four season series on someone, now you're getting into the pale of this doesn't exist. But the, the nickname that they used, which I think is fair, is the Tinkerer. And the reason is because da Vinci, by all accounts, rarely finished anything. Like he just kind of started a lot of things and just finished the things that he was maybe interested in or could finish within a timely manner. Otherwise, he would somewhat just kind of put it away. There are arguments to this day that he didn't even finish the Mona Lisa, um, that it's just kind of eh, good enough. And he moved on to something else. And so what you find very quickly with him is that his mind is working faster than his hands can work. And so he's just everywhere. And then he's like, I'm bored. Let's do something else. Uh, and so the reason he is, and I think the best way to characterize him is he is the most Renaissance man in a Renaissance world. <laughs> he is the most Renaissance man in a Renaissance world. And what that means is he has multiple abilities, artist, sculptor, architect, scientist, engineer, inventor, to name a few. And his art is good. It is really good. Uh, you know, me personally, as someone who does enjoy art and does enjoy going to different art museums and what, like, whatnot, I don't actually think Da Vinci's my favorite art favorite artist. I don't even think he's in my top five. But I absolutely believe he's really that good. If I was gonna put together a top five artistic people of all time, he's probably still number one. Does that make sense? I think my my favorite artist in this time is definitely Michelangelo. But it's what speaks to me the most. But if you talk about someone who had talent, just pure talent, Da Vinci is better. Um, and that hurts me to say because I love Michelangelo. Uh, but has anyone seen the Mona Lisa in person? We have a couple people. Has anyone seen it? You've seen it in person? Seen it in person? Uh, when you go and see the uh, Mona Lisa, first of all, you're in the biggest art museum in the world, right? In the Louvre. And to give you an idea of how big the Louvre is, it's like two French blocks, like Parisian blocks, of three to four stories of art, plus underground. And it's in like a uh, um, horseshoe. <laughs> it's really big, to the point where you can get lost in the Louvre very quickly. And what's hilarious about the Mona Lisa is everyone, when they pick up their tour guide, they find the Mona Lisa and they're, they're running with you to find it. And it's a disaster trying to look at it. And then you get there and you look at it and you're like, that's really small. That's really, really small. Because it's really not much bigger than that Norway map back there. If you look at the back of the classroom, that's probably bigger than the Mona Lisa. And this piece or this painting is worth in the millions and millions and millions of dollars for a variety of reasons. And we don't even know if she's smiling. But the point is, uh, the Mona Lisa has become almost a legend in art history. And so there's reasons for that. But when you go to see the Mona Lisa, I caution you before you get to the Mona Lisa and get disappointed that it's too small and you can't see it because everyone's in the way and you're allowed to take pictures in the Louvre. So everyone's got their phone out 
and they're holding their phone above their head. It looks like a concert and you're in the back. <laughs> and the only way to get to the front is if you cry. So if you cry, they like bring you to the front. They're like, they're having a moment and they bring them to the front and you get to enjoy the fact that you can see the Mona Lisa and you stop crying immediately because you can actually see it and you're like, oh, it's too small. Let's go. Um, I'm just kidding. It's not that bad. Now, when you get there, if you just had looked left instead of going right, you would have seen this, which is the Virgin on the Rock, which is also an incredibly good painting. And I would argue is probably even a better painting. And he did this one about three different times. He did it in different stages. But can anyone notice some of the art characteristics or Italian Renaissance characteristics that are in this piece, the Virgin on the Rocks? Yeah. Light and shadow. Absolutely. Yeah. Geometric arrangement and shape, as well as perspective. Yes. Yeah, the babies are ripped. Some ripped babies, for sure. Yeah. Realism. Absolutely. Realism and perspective. We talked about women in this period. How are women portrayed generally? Mary, Eve, or Venus, right? So Medusa would fit in that Eve category. So you're either the mother of Christ, a deceiver. What's the last one? Perfect beauty. Good luck, women. So you have this kind of, you can be one of those three things in painting. Well, this is what? Mary, yeah, the the Madonna. So you have that uh, reference to the mother of Christ. I'll show you the geometric arrangement just kind of quickly here. and then perspective. And like I said, he played around with the background a number of times. This was the one that he settled on. Um, but there were a couple of other paintings that he did were almost identical with different backgrounds. The other thing that's interesting about Da Vinci is the fact that he has 5,000 pages or so of unpublished work, meaning that when he died, we're looking through all of these sketches and whatnot and finding very quickly a lot of the stuff that he just was tinkering with throughout his career. Uh, If you look at the piece on the left, which is a bunch of old men uh, standing around in what looks like togas, and they're discussing God knows what, but he's so fascinated with, you know, their little folds and bumps and uh, oldness of their skin and whatnot, right? And then you look at the piece on the right, and what is he playing with? Yeah? Yeah? Motion, yeah, movement. Um, he, he was fascinated by the little things that before him were seen as no one can do that. Like no one can paint or draw or sketch movement. It, no, everything's still. And so he's messing with things to see what's possible. Um, and he never believed that he was constrained by his reality. And that, that really becomes a theme within da Vinci's work is that he's always kind of pushing the boundary. Now this is a total conspiracy that I actually think is actually a terrible conspiracy. But some people think that Mona Lisa is actually him uh, as a self-portrait. Now, I I don't think that's accurate. Uh, It doesn't work for me. We know who the commission was for. You'll actually read in Vasari's work that I'm going to give to you uh, today that it the, the issue with the Mona Lisa is that it's, it's somewhat unfinished. They just kinda, he kind of had it with him, and then it ended up over, I think, in the French court for a while because uh, he did spend quite a bit of time in France working for 
um, the French king at the time. And um, the, the reason that the Mona Lisa is as popular and as expensive as it is today is because it is so riddled with conspiracies. Uh, and that's what, that's what actually creates value um, on this particular painting. I know you're like, that doesn't make sense. Well, that's how most things create value is their uniqueness. And the fact that this particular piece is as unique as it is, lends itself to so many questions is really what gives it its value. Uh, the other thing, and I, I did, I don't know if I said this in this class, but the thing that Leonardo sculpted a lot of times were he really liked horses because horses in movement, um, he really enjoyed playing with. <clears throat> so you do see a number of his sculptures being these like horse figures. Uh, and they're relatively small. His pieces are not much bigger than my microphone, uh, his sculptures. He does have some bigger stuff, but, uh, and, and a couple that are really important, but not many. Uh, the other thing you see is he starts messing around with architecture and city planning and things like that. He was hired by a number of different cities to do this. Uh, this is in his notebook uh, that was going to be a plan for the city of Amola. The other thing that I talked about before is that he used to break into the morgue uh, or pay his way into the morgue. And so he's not just going to be charting the human body. Uh, he's also going to be charting like a fetus. So he's opening uh, maybe a, a woman died before she gave birth and he's going into the morgue and essentially opening up and looking at this for the first time. And that's why it's so accurate. Um, this is his uh, sketches that eventually will get included in many of the early um, books around physiology and uh, the human body. So his sketches are, be they're as accurate as they are because he's literally looking at what he's painting, okay? Uh, and, and so a lot of this stuff becomes really the, the predecessor to later scientific and medical discoveries as we go forward. Um, it's going to be more important when we get to the age of absolutism because in the age of absolutism, people are going to start getting invested more in science and uh, in medicine. And when that happens, uh, they'll utilize a lot of his stuff um, as a basis. Um, you also see here in his, in his notebook, the one on the top left, which looks like a cart with a couple of cannons on top. This is basically the early version of like a rail gun or something like that, where you kind of have multiple shots at one time or volleys at one time. Uh, so it's an early version of what is eventually going to be a machine gun, which is obviously more, you're, you're going to get more out of a machine gun. But for his era, this is way ahead of his time. The one on the top right is an early version of a tank um, and what that might look like. And if you look at a tank in early World War I, it's not that different. And he's 400 years before. So you're talking about a significant shift. Yeah. You know how like... Yeah. It actually kind of sucked, though, but, I mean, it was cool. Yes. It, I mean, what, what you find is actually throughout history, there are a number of these kind of groundbreaking war things, and some people continue to use them, and some just kind of disappear for a while. Um, but the Middle Ages will do that to technology. Uh, and then at the end of uh, his writings and things, you start to see him working with flight. Uh, he does it for like the one here is almost like a helicopter, an early version of what a helicopter would be. Uh, he actually worked with 
wing suits and things like that so that he could try to glide. Um, he wanted to be able to fly, but he couldn't figure out how to fly, but he could kind of glide a little bit. A lot of the stuff that he had was too heavy, which was the problem. Um, obviously, if he had better technology, he would have figured out flight before the Wright brothers, for sure. But the technology that he had was so far behind. He was working with he could. And honestly, he's still 400 years ahead of the Wright brothers. So um, the other thing you see is these kind of early water lifting devices as well as siege defenses. The Industrial Revolution will be powered by water in around 1700 to 1800, that, that period, until you get more usage of the steam engine towards the late, late, later part of the 1700s. He's 200 years ahead of his time again when it comes to that stuff. So, you know, he, Da Vinci is unique. Uh, he's paranoid. Uh, I mean, he wrote everything in his notebook upside down and backwards so that you had to use a, a mirror to read anything. Um, and he's probably best characterized as that best version of a Renaissance man during the Renaissance, where everyone else is trying to just kind of be like Da Vinci. And so if we're talking about this concept of virtue, guys like Michelangelo, guy like Da Vinci kind of embody that thing. And everyone just wishes they were that good. And that becomes kind of the theme uh, throughout that period. Yeah, one more question. Yeah, like, I, it, as far as all, I haven't seen all of the page, all 5,000 pages myself. Um, and, and that is very possible that that he did create that kind of a, a water mechanism. Um, what, what I can tell you is that in 5,000 pages, it's far more than what I just showed you, right? And it's far, some of it is useful. Some of it is like, he probably just went on some tangent that was never going to work. But um, yeah, it, his... I think kind of like what I said at the beginning of the, the lecture is his mind was working faster than his hands could think. And I, when I think of Da Vinci, I think of that ADHD kid that is super smart, but you can't get him to sit down. You're just like, stop, finish something. Um, and, and that becomes kind of the trend with Da Vinci. It's like he's so everywhere, but he needed to be to, to make his mind work properly. Um, very interesting guy. But that's it for Da Vinci, and we're going to jump into Raphael on uh, Monday. So, Raphael's most important component of the Renaissance is his portraiture. But uh, like we talked about earlier, while he does have probably some of the best portraits from a technical standpoint, his uniqueness is that his best piece or most memorable piece is probably not a portrait. So his greatest piece that most of us consider his greatest piece is the School of Athens, which we'll look at later on in this. The School of Athens is not a portrait. It is mural size, which to give you some perspective, that particular piece is about the size of the back of my classroom. It is very, very big. Uh, the wall there. So he is probably the best portrait artist for a variety of reasons. I'm going to give you a couple of them now. He is probably one of the best at light and shadow. He utilizes geometric arrangement and generally has more than one individual in his portraits. Obviously, he does have certain portraits that are singular, but many of his portraits include other individuals or people that the person thought was necessary to include in a portrait of themselves. 
a couple popes do this that Raphael paints, um, as well as this one here with the portrait of the artist with his friend. Uh, as you can tell, this is going to be a common theme with Raphael. Also, if you look at some of the detail within the hands, um, Raphael is clearly not afraid to paint hands in a period where you really have to be good and technically good to do so. Many artists hid them and put them in other places so that you couldn't see them because they didn't want to deal with hands because hands were difficult. And uh, Raphael clearly doesn't mind. If you look here, the realism here is pretty good uh, for someone that is in this period, 1483 to 1520. So the other thing about him is he starts painting a number of the most important people in his age. That means he's going to be painting for popes at times. He's going to be painting for a number of noble families. And one person that he does paint, Baldassare Castiglione, is also really well known in this era for being one of the biggest contributing factors to the literary side of the Renaissance. He writes The Courtier, and The Courtier is a book about how to, it's kind of a how-to book of being a noble or a Renaissance man. And the reason that this piece is important, well, there's a variety of reasons. The reason it's, it's important, at least to Castiglione, is that he believed, like, and this is actually a biblical reference that he's making in a way. Uh, there's, a, there's a verse in the New Testament that says, to whom much is given, much is required. And what Castiglione believed was when you became a noble, it was because that your family was noble. And you're kind of born into it, but that is a gift to be a noble. And he believed that you had to almost protect that gift and keep it so that your family did not lose uh, traditional value, your family name did not lose value. Now, there's two things that I'm going to kind of introduce with this with Castiglione. First of all, and, and it's going to feel like I'm sidetracking, but I'm not. I'm, I'm going to come full circle in a minute. In this period, and for us going forward, the term old money refers to that noble money that has lasted over time. Now, a question for you is, how do we define old money? What is generally, how is it rooted? Yeah. I guess it's like people, like the Rothschilds, who have accumulated that wealth over centuries of just being good with money. Good. So having uh, families that have money over a long-standing tradition, absolutely. Um, but where is generally, if you have old money, what do families with old money, I'm going to make a bit of a pun here, ground their fortune in? Land, meaning that they own land generally. Um, and many of the early nobles, and think of it like this, in the feudal era in Europe, you lived on a noble's land, right? And that noble, you, you were able to work the land, but then you paid a noble a fee to live there. And the fact that the noble had wealth was really the fact that they had land, right, and title. So that is old money. Now, new money is what? Yeah, so quick money fast in a new business or a, a new venture. So, for example, in this period, one of the things that becomes really popular is merchant wealth. Uh, and technically, the Medicis are relatively new money, although they start becoming old money over time. The Medici family will become incredibly wealthy and have a lot of land as well. But a lot of their money is made with a combination of merchant and banking wealth. But 
new money in today's time, let's take like 21st century money. I'm sure that you guys have all heard of people that are multimillionaires that lose everything. And the problem with new money is that it's easy to lose because it easy come, easy go. Yes, you can make a lot of money overnight. And this happened a lot in the tech boom. Um, in the 1990s, we had a bunch of tech companies IPO really quick, make a ton of money overnight. You saw people driving Porsches one day, and then the next day they didn't have a job. And what you realize very quickly is there was a few companies that actually had value and could last over time. And then there were other companies that were everyone thought, oh, all of these tech companies are just going to be huge. Well, some of them were not huge. And some of them closed their doors very quickly. And so that new money just disappeared. And if they didn't invest that money into land or title or, in our terms, property, they probably lost almost all of that money very quickly. And, you know, you could talk about celebrities and artists today or, um, you know, basketball stars, football stars, baseball stars. It doesn't matter what field it is. If you make a lot of money very quickly and you don't have a good accountant or someone that's actually going to put that money or yourself, someone that's going to put that money to work for itself, you'll lose it really quick. And you're like, well, why are we talking about all this? We thought we were talking about Raphael. Well, the reason is, remember, Castiglione is writing a how-to book on being a noble. And so he's talking about the things that you need to do to preserve your title as a noble over time. And so some of the things that he believed you needed to do were a lot of those things that we call Renaissance man. You needed to be able to read. You needed to be able to write, speak multiple languages, possibly do music. And mostly because you were given the gift of nobility, you needed to act like it. And you needed to warrant the fact that people saw you as noble. And in a lot of ways, Castiglione believed that if you didn't act noble, you were a detriment to the rest of the nobles. Because everyone in society is looking at you and going, oh, that noble's just throwing their money away. They don't know how to deal with wealth. And that might be the case. There might be families like that in, this, in these Italian city-states that are just throwing the money away. But you got to believe that a lot of the nobles, the, the parents are saying, I'm going to train my kids how to make this money last over time and how to make the, the value of our family name last over time. And I think you also start to realize why next unit we'll get into the Reformation. When you get to Henry VIII, why it's so important to have a lineage to carry on the family name, because that is when you're gone, all that you have left back then is what is coming after you. Um, it's also one of the reasons why in this class, we'll talk about, you know, who is the greatest ruler in European history. Well, one of the pe person that always comes up is Elizabeth, Elizabeth I, who's an excellent ruler. And in my opinion, probably the greatest ruler in European history. What is her one flaw? She has no children. And so while she is probably the greatest ruler in her probably England's history, um, she ushers in what we call the golden age of England. After her comes James and the Stuarts from Scotland, and they come down and ch try to change things back to the way that they were. And the English are like, not this again. And then very quickly, they're going to a civil war. So one of the things that's really important is lineage. And this is why Castiglione matters is in this period, he is talking about a way to preserve your family name, a way to preserve wealth and the things that you should do to demonstrate that you deserve to be called noble. Okay. Now, another thing that I've kind of gone through with you guys is the different ways that women are portrayed in history. 
And in our period of the Renaissance, the three most common ways, of course, are the Madonna, which is the Mary, uh, mother of Christ. Uh, you have the usurper kind of serpent version, which I'll show you more in detail later this week. And then later in this slideshow, I'm also going to show, show you Venus, which is that perfect beauty. Um, and those are really the three ways. So you do see that as a common theme in Raphael's paintings is the Madonna. Okay. Um, you see it as well here. And if you look at the, the painting on the left, Sistine Madonna, there's a couple things that are kind of interesting. Has anyone seen those cupids before? Those little cherubs at the bottom? It's actually a really famous cutout of this Sistine Madonna. Um, those particular pieces, because first of all, they're just really good and realistic. Uh, but in this piece, if I were giving you a quiz about identify some Italian Renaissance characteristics of the Sistine Madonna, which is the piece on the left. What are some things you think you could point out very quickly that are definitely Italian Renaissance? Okay, so you have that realism. Absolutely. You do have the massive babies, but, you know, what are we going to do? Good. So we create perspective by geometric arrangement. If you see it, it's basically a triangle, right? Or three triangles, but the entire piece is a, is a triangle, which creates that perspective for us uh, in this piece. What I think is also ironic is that you have the, the cherubs there at the bottom of the painting, and rarely do you have that. Usually angels are above uh, the humans, but in this particular piece, it's not. And then, of course, on the right, we have that Madonna with her uh, super baby. Um, now, I am going to give you some of the characteristics of the School of Athens, which is Raphael's greatest work. And while you're writing them down, I'm also going to allude to some of the synonyms that you may need to know on your popish quiz that you might have, where you're going to need to know some of the vocabulary. And we're really excited that it's a mow day today because they're probably going to mow right next to my window for the next 30 minutes. Now, the School of Athens is one-point perspective. It is, if you look at the exact middle of the painting, there's going to be a vanishing point that is going to create the perspective for the rest of the painting. It is probably the most balanced painting I've ever seen. What do you think you, I mean by that? Yeah, it is. If you just weighed the painting based on where the figures are and everything, it would probably just be very equal. The whole thing. Okay. It's incredibly balanced to the point where the people on the top row of the painting are generally even the same height. So it almost creates this perfect line of, uh, uh, across the top. So you actually have linear perspective as well as depth perspective. It's really interesting. Um, the other thing is, and if you look at bullet number two, all of the important Greek philosophers and thinkers are included, all the great personalities of the seven liberal arts. If we are looking at a synonym for that description, what would that be? Classicism, right? The reference to Greco-Roman figures is classicism. Now, the bottom figure or the bottom Point where it says no Christian themes. River, you want to give me the reference there? Secularism. So you have secularism, which you could put in parentheses there. So I would always, whenever we're going through notes and things, if I don't just put secularism, or I don't just put classicism, but I describe it, I would for myself be like classicism, secularism. Because on a test, a lot of times what 
the AP is asking for is for you to be able to utilize your ability to say, okay, this equals that I can make the correlation. Okay. Um, and a lot of times they are testing your ability to kind of flesh out the vocab without just telling you what it is. Um, now, one of the things I think is really interesting about this piece is that it is being worked on the same time as Michelangelo is working on the Sistine Chapel. And I think that's important because you have to realize that while Michelangelo and Raphael didn't have a grand relationship, to be fair, Michelangelo didn't really like anyone, but he respected Raphael and Raphael clearly respects Michelangelo. And when I get to the School of Athens and show you what it looks like, I'll show you how. So I have to change my thing here. Now, this is a cell phone picture, which is why I, I have to give myself a little bit of credit. It's the best picture I can find even on the internet, but I'm not in the middle. So if, if I were giving you perfect perspective, I would be a little more centered. I'm not. I got as close as I could and got a clean, the cleanest picture I could. And I apologize for this thing right here. That is a giant flag because when you walk around the uh, Vatican, you have tour guides that are walking you around and you have so many people walking with you that you can't find them a lot of times. So they have a little flag dancing around and a lot of them are short too. So they have little flags. Anyway, um, so sorry about the flag. Now, we're going to take a look at this piece. As I said before, it is incredibly balanced. Do you guys see up here how I can almost draw a straight line? across the top of the heads of those guys on the top row. And then the single point perspective is right there, okay? And then everything is off of that point going out. So you have perfect linear perspective as well as depth, depth perspective. Um, there are a couple of very important people in here. And by a couple, I mean a lot. Anyone notice who the center to? We'll start in the center. This is Plato and Aristotle. Which one's which? How do we know? Plato is the one with the long beard, I think. Yeah, so why? There's a, there's a very easy way. Now, this is Plato right here. Plato is, um, first of all, who is Raphael painting as Plato? Da Vinci. So this is Da Vinci as Plato, which will make sense here in a second. Now, what is Plato doing? He is pointing up, right? Now, I talked about at the beginning of the year when we talked about the Greeks. Plato is known for what? Platonic thought, which is the idea that you can find perfect truth or knowledge through your own thinking, which is why he is pointing up, okay? He is also holding his book, which is probably the Republic. Now, Da Vinci is seen as Plato because Da Vinci is the thinker of the Renaissance period, right? Da Vinci never saw things as they were. He saw things as he thought they should be or something like that. And so that's how Raphael sees Da Vinci. Now, we're not quite sure who Aristotle is portrayed as, but this is Aristotle. And why do you think Aristotle is pointing out? 
He is pointing out and down, which is very different because Aristotle did not just believe that perfect thought came from up here out of nowhere. Aristotle believed in experimentation. He, he believed in observation. He believed in verification. And eventually Aristotle becomes known, or the, the thoughts of Aristotle became known in the Western world as the Aristotelian view. Worldview. Which is going to also equal the Judeo-Christian tradition. And this is why when we get to the age of Galileo and other early scientific discovery, when Galileo starts positing the idea that the earth is not the center. Now, I realize he's not the first one to posit this. He is the one who kind of gets in trouble for it and puts all the pieces together. I know, we'll get to that later. But when he does that, the reason that it's heresy is because the Aristotelian worldview and the Judeo-Christian worldview decide to be the same. And so what happens is the Judeo-Christian tradition go, oh, the smartest person in the Western world, Aristotle, or one of them, is basically saying what we already believe, it must be true. And that becomes truth for about 1,600 years. And then when Galileo comes around and goes, no, 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 I can see it moving, they're like, no, sorry. We know truth, and that's not truth. That's heresy. So, But that's because Aristotle is considered the greatest mind of his day and actually confirms the Judeo-Christian tradition as well. Um, now, if we look at this guy down here, the guy sitting on the steps uh, reading a tablet, that is Socrates. Um, Socrates, of course, is the one who never wrote anything down, um, so he does not carry a book with him. Uh, but he is probably doing something like reading and being annoying because he's good at those things. Um, then you have Michelangelo. So Michelangelo is put in here right there. Um, now, does anyone know the philosopher that Michelangelo is painted as? He is painted as Heraclitus. Now, Heraclitus is a pre-Socratic philosopher in Greek tradition. Now, what I believe that Raphael is saying when he does this is he is painting Michelangelo as almost a forerunner of greatness. He's essentially saying, now you could kind of say Raphael's a bit of a fanboy. Because Raphael puts himself in here, by the way, but he puts himself over there in the corner. And he is not the center of this painting at all. He is observing the greatness that is outside of him. And he's observing the da Vinci's and the Michelangelo's that are changing the game. And that's probably how Raphael saw himself. And I would argue that in this, when he's referencing Heraclitus, He's saying, Michelangelo, you're so far ahead of your time that it's going to take generations to catch up to you. And I think that's what he's saying. Um, now, we do know that Michelangelo and Raphael knew each other. Michelangelo never had a problem with Raphael, which actually says a lot because he generally had a problem with everyone else. Um, and I also think that might be the reason that this is not, while Aristotle might be a good person to make into Michelangelo because he's kind of central to this whole thing, uh, Michelangelo and da Vinci didn't love each other, mostly because uh, they were fighting for a lot of the same commissions. And so because they were fighting for a lot of the same commissions, uh, they did not generally see eye to eye because they were fighting for the same thing. 
and when the other person got it versus the other one, they didn't love it, right? Um, that being said, a lot of times in Italy, Michelangelo got the majority of the commissions. I would argue because you could never get Da Vinci to finish one. So Da Vinci eventually will go to France where he will be working in the French court um, later. Now, in this particular piece, there are other philosophers throughout it. I will kind of click through briefly for you just so that you can see them. Uh, you have Pythagoras, um, you have Ptolemy, Euclid, all kind of major minds that are early, that are uh, contributing to science, math, uh, geometry, other things like that. Now, going back to his, his portraiture. Now, as far as the, the School of Athens goes, if you ever get a question and it includes the School of Athens, you're kind of able to hit a home run because it has almost everything in the Italian Renaissance. It's got classicism, geometric arrangement, one-point perspective, realism and expression, uh, artists as celebrities, like it's got it all, right? So it becomes one of those few pieces that you can kind of describe the entirety of the Italian Renaissance characteristics. So that's the one nice thing about the uh, School of Athens. Now, getting back to the portraits, he, like I said earlier, he did a number of popes. I'm going to talk briefly about both popes that he does here in this period. He does Pope Julius II's piece. Uh, pope Julius was known as the warrior pope. During this period, the Italian city-states went to war with each other a number of times, and this pope was kind of central to that. Um, him and Florence did not get along for a while, which is probably why when Pope Julius died in 1513, he eventually will be succeeded by Pope Leo X, who is a Medici pope, because the Medicis probably found a way to get him elected. I don't know, I don't know for sure if it's simony, but it's very possible that some of these people were paid off to get him elected. Um, but this is going to be the Pope, Pope Leo X, that eventually will start selling a lot of indulgences that a little bit makes Martin Luther a little upset and the rest of Germany and has a bit of a reformation. So Pope Leo X does this because he goes through the Vatican treasury in about a year and he's already exhausted all of the Vatican treasury, mostly on art parties and things like that. Um, because of that, he starts selling more and more indulgences. And if you're German, you're sitting there already kind of going, we don't really have much say in Italy already. And they're selling indulgences, which means they're getting even more and more money from us. And we're not getting much representation. And then Luther comes around and kind of calls indulgences out as being an inaccurate interpretation of the Bible anyway. And the Germans are already to leave the church. So, yeah. So the indulgences are a, let, I'll give you the short version now. I'll expand on this next week. So indulgences are essentially a get out of jail free card that you are purchasing. So if you committed a sin that was egregious, but not like generally not just, oh, I killed someone. Say it was something like I stole or something like that. You could purchase an indulgence to get rid of that sin. Now, Martin Luther will have a significant problem with this, and we'll talk about this next week. The other thing you could do with an indulgence is you could purchase the salvation of someone who had already died. So say you had someone who died and you weren't sure if they were in heaven. There was 
uh, a lot of theory at that time around Abraham's bosom, which was considered almost like a, a holding center before the, the spirit went up or down, either went to hell or heaven. You kind of were held there. Well, they had this saying when the penny hits the coffer, the soul springs to heaven. And the idea would be that you pay, get an indulgence, and that piece of paper said that your family member was now in heaven. And Martin Luther was like, this is not accurate. This doesn't work for me. Um, but obviously, Pope Leo is trying to raise money. He's also building St. Peter's, which is a giant cathedral, which I've showed you a number of times in passing, and I'll show you more specifically when we get there. So um, anyway, Raphael is doing all of these portraiture, and essentially he is a court painter for the Pope, a, a number of different popes, and, and does their uh, portraits. Now, just a quick, just to sum up the Italian Renaissance period, one other guy that I like to just show you is Botticelli. Now, I told you that one of the ways that women are perceived is perfect beauty or Venus. Um, this is that. Now, Botticelli's one issue, in my opinion, is that lot, a lot of his pieces start to feel very similar. Uh, he has this style that, in my opinion, is so linear, meaning just horizontal, that it becomes the way that he does every single piece. And... I find him somewhat boring the more pieces you see of his. Now, that doesn't say it's not good because Botticelli's stuff is really good. And to be fair, The Birth of Venus is incredible. It's very, very good. But if you look at one of his other most popular pieces called Primavera, Primavera looks like a recreation of The Birth of Venus just with different people put around it. Um, I'll, I'll show it to you here if I can, if the internet's back. And if the internet's not back, I do apologize, but I'll try to see if we can see it. So Primavera has this very linear perspective again, where the people are all about the same size. It's kind of that spring theme. So sorry, we got internet problems. I'll show it to you next time I can. But for now, um, we'll end here. Now, when we get to the next section for us, which is going to be the block day, we'll look at how the Italian Renaissance painting and the Northern Renaissance paintings are very different. So uh, the learning target that I put up there is kind of that comparison learning target where we're learning the differences between the Italian Renaissance and the Northern Renaissance. I'll give you the simple version. The Italian Renaissance is about idealism. We would love to be the Greeks and Romans. The Northern Renaissance is very preachy. It's very Christian themed, and it's almost a warning that you're probably going to hell, you should probably repent. And so in the, in the uh, scope of human history, most humans like to be told what they can be, not that they're going to hell. And so it, even though the Northern Renaissance painters are at times even technically way better, most of them get forgotten quicker than the Italian Renaissance because of the themes that the Italian Renaissance thrive on. Whereas in the North, it's a little more preachy, it's a little more sobering, and people are not too into that, or not as much into that. To be fair, they're great artists, and I'll show you that as we go forward.